Good morning. Am I there? Wow. Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to church this morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we are in the midst of our series on the Psalms, which is entitled Anatomy of the Soul. So the reason we entitled it that is because of a John Calvin quote in which he describes the Psalms as portraying the whole anatomy of our souls. So that is, anything that can take place in us is captured in the Psalms. Um, what's interesting about the Psalms, as we'll see, is it, it sort of uh, captures a discrepancy that we have in our culture in terms of how we relate to our own emotions. What we have in our culture is two competing narratives. One which says your emotions are the core of your being. So in order to truly know yourself, you need to get in touch with your own emotional state. And that is who you are. Ultimately, that is the most complete version of yourself. And then there's another side in our culture that uh, prescribes a sort of stoic detachment from your emotions. The problem is you're just following your emotions, and you need to quiet them and only follow your reason. And we don't really have a description of how to live as whole people. How do our emotions matter and our reason matter? How does knowing encompass both a thinking and a feeling? And what we see in the Psalms is this wholehearted way of living, where instead of demonizing one aspect of our humanity and idolizing another aspect of our humanity, we see a completeness in the Psalms to live wholeheartedly feeling and thinking completely in life, the way that God created us to be as whole people. This morning, we are looking at Psalm 51, which is likely a familiar psalm, and it's a psalm about repentance. So this morning, welcome to church, we're talking about repentance. So repentance is a difficult word because it's often used like a weapon, and your experience of the term repentance may have been under the word, you know, repent, repent, as you're like walking into a Broncos game. Um, so when we use the word repent, we've got to do a lot of work because we've got to put it in a context where we don't just have this repulsion to the word. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at what is the biblical model of repentance. What does the word repentance really mean? Is it just a weapon used to force conformity? Or is it something that actually leads you into becoming your truest self? Next, so a week from Tuesday, does anybody know what day that is? Exactly. It's the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. It's Halloween. Everyone said Halloween, I know. Um, so it, what, what happened then when Martin Luther did that, uh, it sparked the Reformation, which was a recapturing of repentance in the late medieval church at a time when it had been completely lost. Repentance had been so twisted and distorted that it had nothing to do with becoming who God created you to be. Um, it had turned into more of a stifling uh, of works. The first premise in Martin Luther's 95 Theses, number one, premise number one, that 500 years ago, a week from Tuesday, 
was unleashed on the world. It reads like this. It says, Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. So that means repentance is not an aspect of our lives. It's something that's holistic. Repentance is this sort of demeanor that exists within us as people. So the difficulty with that is when we pair that with our whole life should be repentance and a culture that it, uh, where repentance has been used so negatively to force people into a sort of conformity, how do we rectify those two? You see, the underlying the basis of repentance is this idea that we are in some way wrong. There's a necessity of wrongness for repentance to make any sense. You don't turn from a right thing to another in order to return to a right thing. You turn from a wrong thing. The first step in repentance is discovering a wrongness. And so, in our cult, I think that oftentimes that can have such a negative association because it's this baseline assumption that we as humans are somehow fundamentally wrong. And that's not something that we want to deal with. But the difficulty with ignoring the wrongness in ourselves is it stunts our growth. It stunts our opportunity for discovery, our opportunity for true growth and curiosity and experience. Uh, Catherine Schultz is a writer for The New Yorker, and she did a TED Talk uh, which was based on her book called On Being Wrong. And in it is a sort of description of how important it is to sort of embrace, for lack of a better word, our wrongness, to live in light of our wrongness as a sort of reality, a fundamental component of our humanity. She says this, 1,200 years before Descartes said his famous thing about, I think, therefore I am, this guy, St. Augustine, sat down and wrote, Falor ergo sum, I err, therefore I am. Augustine understood that our capacity to screw up, it's not some kind of embarrassing defect in the human system, something we can eradicate or overcome. It's totally fundamental to who we are. Because unlike God, we don't really know what's going on out there. And unlike all of the other animals, we are obsessed with trying to figure it out. To me, this obsession is the source and root of all of our productivity and creativity. You see, knowing anything at all, coming in contact with reality at all, starts with discovering a wrongness a wrongly held belief, a wrongness that's in ourselves. So to ignore repentance because it begins with wrongness is to ignore any sort of discovery. Repentance is the opportunity to bring thought in line with truth, to bring yourself in line with the way reality actually is, rather than how twisted we can begin to perceive it. And we know that people, including ourselves, perceive reality in all sorts of twisted ways. How much of our suffering is just ourselves? Who do you lie to more than yourself? Example, snooze button. <laughs> yeah, that one lands. <laughs> Many of us are trapped 
in a misunderstanding of ourselves and a misunderstanding of the people around us. We feel like we're going in circles in relationships that we can't make any sense of. And that's because we aren't in touch enough with our own wrongness. We don't have an expectation of our own wrongness. Another way to say that, repentance isn't the whole of our life. When repentance is the whole of your life, you have this humble disposition. I literally just got a text. <laughs> Who doesn't know I'm here? <laughs> I gotta silence my phone. Okay. Um, everybody, take a moment. Silence your phones. Rep I repent. It's an object lesson. So, um, your whole of life is repentance, and that means your whole of life is an opportunity to discover who you truly are and who God really is in a real way. That doesn't mean it's not painful, but it does mean that to say repentance is wrong because it forces us to say that we are wrong, that there's something inherent in us is wrong, it makes that line of argument, it, it doesn't work anymore. Because all discovery starts with our own wrongness. So I want us to see repentance really does work like that. Psalm 51 is one of the most famous examples of repentance in Scripture. It's right after David gets caught having an affair with Bathsheba and murdering her husband, a story which I'll recount in detail soon. But what I want us to see throughout this psalm is that true repentance, it begs us towards a freedom that we would rarely dare let ourselves even hope for. But it takes us there through a shame that we would avoid because we would think it just unbearable. So how does David move through that? How does David's repentance lead to true freedom? So it's a repent that drives you into your truest self. It's not a repent that forces you into a conformity. So we'll see several stages that David goes through. First off is he becomes aware of his sin. Next is David, David's reason for repentance. And then after that, we'll see David experience the pain of repentance, and then finally we'll see David's hope in repentance. So first of all, David's awareness of sin. This is that part where you discover that you're wrong. So the titles, uh, some psalms have titles, a lot of them do, and they're in the Bible. Uh, and this title begins with, To the Choir Master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So that's really helpful because this psalm has a very particular context. We can know exactly when this psalm took place, and that's really rare for psalms. And this psalm took place right after, not the sin with Bathsheba, but after Nathan the prophet goes to confront David about the sin with Bathsheba. So, what is the sin with Bathsheba? It's a story that uh, I'll tell real quickly. So, I'm going to tell a story. So, David is... <laughs> what, that cracked up. Watch. So, David... Uh, David's army is off at war. David 
remained back at his palace residence, and he observes from his rooftop a woman bathing on her rooftop. He inquires as to who she is. She is Bathsheba, the wife of one of David's soldiers, whose name was Uriah. And David then requests that she be brought to him. David is the king. So he requests that she be brought to him. She is. David has sex with her. Bathsheba becomes pregnant and later writes to him that she has become pregnant. Now, this is one of those stories that you can't understand outside of power because David is the king. Bathsheba is not. So to simply say has sex with is obviously a euphemism. How could someone like Bathsheba possibly have any autonomy in that type of relationship? When the king, your husband's boss, calls you to have sex with you because he spotted you and that was his whim. This is rape. David rapes Bathsheba because of his position of power. He's able to. So, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David now is in a panic because it will be apparent to Uriah who's Bathsheba's husband, that this isn't his child. So David invites Uriah back from the front lines to the palace, and he offers for Uriah to go back to his wife. Go spend the night with Bathsheba, because then they will probably sleep together, and it will appear as though the child is Uriah's. Uriah, however, is too honorable he says, how could I possibly go back to see, to see my wife when I know uh, my fellow soldiers are living in the wilderness at war right now? How could I possibly have such a comfort? And so he doesn't go back. David uh, invites him another night, offers him to go back to his home. He declines. David realizes Uriah is too honorable. This plan won't work. Therefore, he must kill Uriah. So he writes... a. Uh, it's basically a death warrant, but it's an order to Joab, who's leader of David's army, which instructs them to position Uriah on the front lines, then at a critical moment, retreat from him, and then he will be killed. And he sends the death warrant in Uriah's hands, because he knows Uriah is so honorable, he won't read it. Uriah carries his own death warrant, and the plan is executed, Uriah is murdered. David marries Bathsheba. They have a child. And one day, Nathan, who is a prophet, comes to visit David. And Nathan tells David a story of a poor farmer who has one prized sheep. And a rich man who comes to visit the poor farmer. And they have a celebration. And the rich man, instead of taking one of his many sheep, takes this prized possession. It was like a daughter to the poor farmer. And takes this prized sheep and slaughters it instead for the celebration. So David, upon hearing that story, he says... 
He's enraged. He's enraged at this rich man who, took, who used his power to take advantage of this poor farmer. And then Nathan says, you are the man. David, you are the rich man who used his power to take advantage of the poor. It's you. David becomes immediately convinced of and convicted of his sin. And he realizes and confesses right then, 2 Samuel 12, 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In tragic literature, like Greek tragedies, this moment has a word. It's called a peripatia. So there's a word you can put in your back pocket and use in a conversation. What it means is a reversal of affairs. It's that tragic turn where finally David sees his sin clearly. David condemns a man for his evil and realizes that man is me. That evil is in me. The sin is mine. If you hope for a good world, if you hope for a just world, then what do you do when you realize that the reason for the world's injustice is you? The reason for the shame and the guilt and the reason for the pain, you see, that's what's in me. How do you pray then when you discover that the source of your problems are your own? In Oedipus Rex, were any of you forced to read that? This is going to go well. So <laughs> I do that once a week <laughs> where I ask if anybody's, and then nobody, and then I say if this is going to go well. Uh, so the uh, Oedipus Rex, here I'll give it to you a brief rundown. Um, a like fortune teller comes to Oedipus's parents and is like, this child will kill his father and marry his mother. And Oedipus' parents are like, that's weird. Let's get rid of this kid. <laughs> so this is a paraphrase. So they get rid of that kid, and um, he's adopted by these other parents. A series of events take place, and, and before you know it, Oedipus has killed his father and married his mother. So uh, Oedipus is told uh, this is finally revealed to him by a blind seer named Tiresias. And Tiresias comes to Oedipus, explains, hey, you killed your dad and slept with your mother. Um, and there's this moment, this turn, where all that Oedipus had feared was in himself, was confirmed it was. It was in him. And he realized that all the ways that he'd tried to see he was blind. And so here's the way it plays out in the text. That, that Tiresias says, who, who's this fortune teller who is blind, he says, so you mock my blindness. Let me tell you this. You, Oedipus, with your precious eyes, you're blind 
to the corruption of your life. And so Oedipus uh, realizes his own blindness, how with his eyes, his eyes had been useless to him, and he gouges his own eyes out. So Greek. You see, the wrongness that Oedipus was confronted with was so deep, he realized such a blindness in himself that the only place he knew to turn was just on himself. He turns completely on himself. He gouges out his own eyes. I'd rather, if this is what it means to see the truth, I'd rather not see any truth anymore. I'd rather see nothing ever again. And I think oftentimes our fear of discovering our own wrongness is similar. We think if I really look and I see that I'm as wrong as I think I might be, it'd be better not to look. It would be better not to be exposed to a truth like that. That truth couldn't possibly set me free. That truth seems like just more slavery. And so we concoct ways to avoid real introspection. We concoct ways to justify ourselves and avoid a sense of shame that we live with. David, I had another example that I think I'm going to skip. And we'll just get right into the psalm. David doesn't gouge his eyes out. David's confronted with this same sort of turn. He doesn't gouge his eyes out. Instead, David turns and he looks to something that he thinks might even transcend his own sin. He looks to something that may be even more true than the reality of his sin. So as we look through this psalm, that's what we see David doing. He turns toward, toward the truth. He turns toward seeing more, not towards more blindness. So with this, we're going to look at the reason for David's repentance. Psalm 51, 1 through 2. Remember, this is immediately after David is confronted by Nathan. This isn't after his sin. This is after the awareness of his sin. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This may seem obvious from those verses, but it is so worth pointing out. David, David's reason for his Repentance is totally grounded in God's steadfast love and abundant mercy. It is grounded in nothing else. This is the base of his argument. This is the reason that he turns. He begs for mercy, and what is the mercy according to? It is not, Lord, have mercy on me according to my lifelong service and commitment to you. 
It's not what he says. He says, have mercy on me according to the amount of pain that I'm feeling in my sin. It's not what he says. It's not, have mercy on me according to the depth of my sorrow. It's only, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. What is the ground of our hope? It's not something that's in ourselves. It's the abundant love of God. What motivates God to forgive? What can we hope in that God will forgive? It's located in who God is. It's in Him. His forgiveness comes from Him. That's where it finds its source. It's not in us. So David throws himself upon the mercy of God based only on the hope that God is merciful. David doesn't wait. See, we'll continue on with with his uh, reaction. He looks to God and he repents because of who he knows God to be. And he makes these three requests. He requests uh, that his transgressions would be blotted out, that God would wash him thoroughly from his iniquity, and that God would cleanse him from his sins. So to be blotted out, that means that there is this historical reality of his sin that exists in the world. And that if God is to be just in any way, that needs to be dealt with. So God needs to somehow blot out, cover up, erase from the record of time this sin. David is saying, take it away. Remove this from me somehow. And then he asks for God to wash away his iniquity. That's saying, that's not dealing with this fact of history that exists in the world now, the, the reality of the sin. And now this is dealing with what's happening inside David. David is saying, I, iniquity is another way of saying it's something that's been twisted. David is saying, I've been twisted on the inside. This really is in me. Can you wash me so that I'm, I'm clean now? Can you wash me so that I'm no longer twisted inside? Can you do the work in me? And then finally he says to cleanse me from my sin. God, could I possibly approach you again with a conscience that didn't create this alienation between us? Could your mercy be so great? that even with the fact of this sin, I could approach you, no longer alienated, but with a conscience that is clean. David's trust in the mercy of God allows him to ask for things that seem unimaginable. They seem too lofty. They seem too good. He goes places that in the depth of our shame we would rarely have the courage to go. asks for things that are so lofty, we rarely hope for them. And that's because he trusts only in God's love, only in God's mercy. That's what's doing the work. So these requests 
that David makes, this isn't a neglect of the reality of what he's done. He's raped, he's murdered, he's put his army in danger. So what we'll see is that because of his understanding of God's steadfast love, he's able to move into the pain of repentance in a way that otherwise we probably never would. So he says in Psalm 51, 3 to 6, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So he says, I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. His sin is immediately present to his mind. It's constantly with him. Do you understand that place of guilt? Have you been there? Have you felt that? Are you there now? Wherever he turns, he sees his sin, the evidence of it, the pain of it. So we see his understanding of, his steadfast, of God's steadfast love. It doesn't cause him to neglect the reality of this. It actually pushes him into it to a greater extent, to a greater depth. David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So David is saying to God, this sin was only against you. So the question is, what about Uriah? What about Uriah's mother and father? Right, they got news. What about Bathsheba? What about the time she spent mourning her husband and then marrying her rapist and her husband's murderer. What's her day-to-day like? And David is saying, against you, God, against you only have I sinned. Is this somehow a minimization or an avoidance of the reality of the way that he's been acting? I think it isn't. I think what David is seeing is going beyond just the consequences of his sin. And he's going to the heart of his sin. Because that's what he can repent of. See, when David was dealing with only the consequences of his sin, and he was judging the evilness of it based on the consequences of it, what that caused David to do was to act strategically. So David said, here's the consequence of this sin. I'm going to lose my reputation. That's bad for the kingdom. They need a strong ruler, one that they can look up to. If it turns out that Bathsheba committed adultery, this would be bad for her. So I need to somehow cover this up to make it look like that never happened. Uriah is too honorable. That way is not going to work. I'm just going to need to get him out of the picture. 
when David is dealing with only the consequences of his sin, he only addresses the consequences of his sin. And he becomes strategic and active, and his sin multiplies. What David finally sees, thanks to Nathan's intervention, is that this sin isn't consequences gone awry. This started in you. This started in your heart. This is an issue in you. And so David sees this is ultimate. This is not merely a sin against these people. This is a sin against those people's creator. This is a sin against the creator who made me. He's not minimizing his sin by saying he sinned only against God. He's maximizing it. He's taking it to its deepest root. He's following it down to a pain and a shame that he, I'm certain he wouldn't have the capability to go to if it weren't for his confidence in God's abundant love, steadfast mercy. Strike that, reverse it. He sees that the sin is not outside of himself. It's in the depth of his character. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity. This wasn't a mere product of his circumstance. This has been in him. And so he's going down to do a work that's deep in the pit of his soul. And that's where repentance actually takes place. Repentance actually takes place in the deepest parts of us. The point is, when we repent, it's not a matter of just handling the consequences. It's a matter of figuring out what is actually happening in me and repenting of that. John Calvin, in writing on this psalm, he says this. He says, We will never seriously apply to God for pardon until we have obtained such a view of our sins as inspires us with fear. So that's an old school quote. Why, why is that true? We would not seriously apply to God for pardon unless we have seen our sins, we have a view of our sins as inspires us with fear. Why is that true? I think it's true because so long as we see our sins as simply consequences gone awry, that we can just wrap our hands around and get the situation under control, we'll never feel afraid that perhaps it's something in us that we can't change. And until we feel that type of fear, we won't turn to God to help us because we won't feel like we need it. We turn to God to help us when we're, we finally see clearly this is something I need to be saved from. This is not something I can just strategize my way out of. So, finally, we see David turn after diving to the depths of his sin to see what the heart of it truly was, a neglect of his creator. We see the hope of repentance. Repentance. 
In Psalm 51, 7 to 12, David writes, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, David is turning to the heights of God's grace now. From the depths of the turmoil and the sin that he sees inside himself, David immediately turns to these heights of grace that are unimaginable. His words are bursting at the seams. He says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me. And it's like he just gets this idea and I shall be whiter than snow. Because who's doing the washing? If God is doing the washing, snow is not a limit to the cleanliness that God can get you to. But it's, you see, it's God who David is depending on to do the washing. David went so far to the depths that he said, this isn't a matter of you merely doing something to my heart. This isn't just some lesson I need to learn that I can then know and have in my back pocket and not make the same mistake again. I need a whole new heart. It's totaled. And I need a new one. So if this is going to work, then God, create in me a clean heart. Create, it's the same, that word is littered throughout Genesis 1. It's, the, it's this creating that God can do. You don't look for that. You don't hope for that. Unless you've seen the depth of what the issue really is. But David has this incredible perspective on God in which in seeing the depths of his sin at the same time, he sees the heights of God's grace. And so when David sees the depths of his sin, instead of being like Oedipus and turning on himself and gouging his own eyes out and saying, this is it, I can no longer live. David instead says, I've seen the depths of my sin, but there's something better out there. God's mercy, God's steadfast love, it can overcome this. If God, even in in this horrible thing that I see myself as, if, if God washes me, I'll be whiter than snow. When he sees me, he'll just make me a whole new heart. That's where David is. You see, it's our lack of, of trust in God's grace that prevents us from going to the depths to see where our sin really takes place. And it's our lack of seeing where our sin really takes place that prevents us from seeing just how high God's grace actually goes, just how clean he can really make you, just how recoverable the situation really is. See, that's the story. David says in Psalm 51, 16 through 7, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
That means when your heart is broken by your sin and you go to God, you will never be rejected. Ever. How do we know that? How do we know the story is actually like that and the story is not like a Greek tragedy? How can our story, instead of being a tragedy, which is shaped like an upside-down U, starts off fine, everything gets better, and then everything gets terrible? How do we hope that our story may be a comedy that starts off fine and things get really bad, but they end even better than they started? You see, we have a king that's very unlike David. David, as a king that his people hoped in, he killed his own people, his friends, in order to cover up his own sin. You see, in Jesus, we see the exact opposite. In Jesus, we see not him kill but him die. Not for his friends, but for his enemies. And in Jesus' death, what we see happen is uh, any judge, you, you put David in front of any judge for the crimes that he's committed, the rape and the murder, and if David doesn't get the death penalty, we'd say this is an injustice. And yet, In Jesus, we see Jesus take on David's death, the death that David deserved, so that David's sins might be blotted out, so that the spirit might never be taken from him, so that he might be cleansed and be able to approach God with a completely clean conscience, so that he might be able to see himself as he is, but live with a hope and a confidence and a joy that he would never have dared let himself imagine. In Jesus, the king who gives himself for his enemies, we see this incredible hope that in the depth of our sin, we know it has been blotted out. We can say outrageous things in the past tense, like, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. The hope of repentance is that the pain that we're so afraid of experiencing by being exposed to our wrongs will actually bring us a joy that is unimaginable. A joy that doesn't force us into a conformity away from ourselves, but a joy that allows us to know ourselves and be ourselves to be yourself in front of your creator, with each other, in our relationships. That's our hope. That's the hope of the gospel. So repent is not a weapon. It's an invitation to be known, to be loved as you are. So with that, let's take some questions. I find myself desiring to repent quite often. 
but afterward, I, re- I rarely feel reconnection back to God or forgiveness for my transgressions. I more frequently feel guilt, shame, sadness, and like I should know better. Is that dynamic appropriate? Um, no. So, uh, that's good news though, right? Like, what if I was like, yeah, that's the way it is. <laughs> when you repent, you should typically just still feel guilty and shameful. Um, so, here's why it's inappropriate. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. So, if our justification, if our forgiveness, hinges not on your feelings, but on the fact of Jesus' death and resurrection in history, then the question is, what, what are you looking to? Where are your eyes going? Because in, in a way, what's happening is you're gouging out your eyes for your sin. Because you know, listen, we have a sense of justice. Like, go on Twitter for like 20 seconds. We have a sense of justice in us as a society where we see things that we see abuses of power. Um, uh, Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein. Right? We know that name because we have the sense of justice. Here's a man who uses his power to take advantage of women. That's wrong. So we have this sense of justice that's inside of ourselves. And so we know that in our sin, there must be some price paid. So typically, we either try and avoid that pain or we turn on ourselves and try and justify ourselves in some way. But God is the one who justifies. So who is the one to condemn? The question is, are you going to agree with your appraisal of yourself or are you going to agree with God's appraisal? What's more prideful? It feels like humility to continue in guilt. It's not. It's pride. It's saying that that Jesus' cross was not effective, that the atonement didn't work. Saying that that wasn't really a demonstration of God's uh, mercy towards us. Therefore, I need to make up for it somehow in my own pain. What's faith? It's approaching the throne room of God as though you're his child who's been adopted. By no fault of your own. It's trusting in the depth of the gospel as though it's a real thing. Not trusting in how you feel about it. Okay, next question. Was David being a God-fearing man truly blind to his sin as he was committing it? If so, was he really living for God in the first place? This is a lot of questions. If we, <laughs> if we live for God daily, wouldn't we refrain from straying so far into sin as David did? Oh, man. What is David referred to as in Scripture? Right. The man after God's own heart. How can that be? 
I don't know what it was like when this was happening with David, but I know David said, who is that? And a bunch of other dudes that he was around said, Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. How they haven't had the roof on that place in a while, and it's awesome. You know, probably something like that. (laughs) And David said, go get her for me. And they said, yeah, totally. So what does that mean? It means that somehow, over time, David had created a culture around himself that made him just plucking a woman to rape her not strange. So was there likely some sort of progress over time, some sort of incremental change in David's heart? It it was probably similar to the decision where David said, you know, this battle, they probably don't need me. I'm just going to hang back here. I think that in our pursuit of God, there is incremental straying that happens all the time. After David had done this sin, I'm sure he went every Sabbath to the temple and prayed to God and made sacrifices. I bet some of those prayers were answered because God is so freakishly faithful to us. The grace of God in David's life was Nathan. When God didn't allow the straying to continue, but instead he showed it to David. And then what happens is this myth of David, of this godly warrior king, who's completely faithful, and the reality of who David had become, they slam into each other. And David is no longer this torn, twisted, half-hearted person in both directions. Now he's just... David. He happens to be a king, but that's not the whole of his identity. The whole of his identity is he is, he's saved by God. He's a child of God. He has this humble relationship with the Lord of the universe, and that's the seat of his identity now. I forget what the question was, because there's a lot of them, but the answer is we can be blind and incrementally moving away from God. By God's grace, he won't let that continue forever. He won't let us live as half people. He wants us to be holy. W-H, I mean both. (laughs) Uh, He wants us to be holy, both spellings. All right. We can see God's mercy towards David after he repents, but where is God's mercy towards Uriah, who as far as we know was a good and honorable man? Yeah, our sin has real implications in the world. Our sin causes real pain. Looking at any particular instance, we can't understand why did God allow this sin to take place and affect and not intervene? And why did he intervene over here to prevent these other sins? We don't know. That's not something that we get to know. But the thing that we do know is that God causes all things to work together for good. So there was some reason that we can trust him, even amidst those terrible expressions of sin, the terrible implications and consequences of sin. 
David prays at the end of his at the end of this prayer. He prays. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. That prayer is answered right now. This psalm has been like a life raft for me, personally, so many times, where if it weren't in there, I would be drowning. I don't know, maybe that wouldn't have been possible without Uriah dying. Our salvation is based in a suffering that looked so horrible but ended up being so glorious. And that's in Jesus. Our hope is still the same for all the other terrible things that happen in the world. Okay. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll take communion. Communion is a time to repent, to come to the Lord as you are, to examine yourself and bring to him, trusting in completely and only his steadfast love towards you, which is demonstrated in that he gave his only son. The broken bread symbolizes Jesus' broken body. The the wine symbolizes Jesus' spilled blood, which was poured out on our behalf that our sins might be covered and we might approach God completely and wholly just as we are. So with that, let's pray. Father, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. In it, we know that the righteousness of God is from faith. Father, grant us a faith that overcomes our guilt and our shame. Father, grant us a faith that allows us to go to depths of repentance that we've just been afraid to now because we see a hope in you that transcends the fear of our being exposed. Lord, let us not gouge out our own eyes, but let us turn to you, to look to you, your mercy towards us. Let's not downplay it as though it's heroic. It's not heroic to downplay your mercy and your grace. Lord, let us trust in its completeness that by it we might be saved and made new and the sin which so easily entangles us can be cast off. Lord, give us a hope and a joy in your salvation that maybe we haven't known before. Lord, I lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.